You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored hello welcome to tfm and literary treks which is the books and comics podcast here and we are so excited to be back and you know what chris we have a doozy i say a doozy of a show for everybody this week yeah it's going to be great we're going to talk about three comics and then we have kirsten Bayer joining us to talk about her new novel to lose the earth which is going to be amazing Glad to talk to her again. It's really been quite a long time since we've had her on because of her you know, work on Discovery and Picard. Yeah, I, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Everybody knows how I feel about her books. Well, uh, of course, you know, um, before we dive into the comics that we wanted to cover, uh wanted to remind everybody that uh, we do have a new book that's out right now. It's out digitally uh, in the hard back is coming out soon uh so you can be on the lookout for that but our friend una mccormick has written the autobiography of Catherine janeway and that is available digitally now and like i said if you're wanting the hardcover that's going to be out very soon here but um we're going to be talking to her soon as well so you'll want to make sure to have read that so you can listen to the interview and uh you know just exciting uh to to be getting i, I feel like in these last few months, there's a lot of Star Trek books. I don't, I don't know if it's just me, but I just feel like there's a lot coming out at one time. Kirsten's book, Una's book here, and then we've got Greg Cox's book coming out very soon as well. So, three great books coming out in a row here, and uh, which means it's going to be three great episodes of Lower Treks for you. That's right. Yeah, I've been talking to Una about coming on, and so that's going to happen. The hardcover as you mentioned, is going to be out October 27th. So, you know, by the time this episode drops, probably it's going to be out. And if you want the paperback, that's not coming out until next year. I think it's July 6th. And unfortunately, there's no audio version because this one's done by Titan, but uh, you can get the digital now, which I have, and it's going to be great to delve into that backstory of Catherine Janeway. I'm thinking back to, you know, reading Jerry Taylor's books back when Voyager was premiering and learning about Janeway and that back history. And we've done those here on the show years ago. So it's going to be good to catch up some more. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, as we mentioned, we've been getting some good stuff with comics and we're continuing with uh, Star Trek year five. We're going to be reviewing issues 13 and 14. And I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't cover these one at a time because they make a great duology as the Enterprise is making its way back from the unknown regions of space uh, and making their way back into Federation space. And they're on the Federation border and they return to uh, Starbase uh, 212. And um, they're greeted by seeing some of the brand new ships here in the fleet. There's there's actually a massive fleet. It is, right. I didn't understand why is there such a massive fleet of starships here? 
Hey, can you well, explain that to me, Chris? I have to say, if I were the Federation's enemy, I would find out that, hey, the Enterprise is coming home. And look, they're getting every ship they've ever built together to greet them. So this is our chance to strike because they have no ships anywhere else to protect anything because everybody is there to greet Kirk. That's that's my reading of one of the maybe the second page here. <laughs> I mean, there's 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 even NX class ships right? from like yeah, Enterprise yeah, yeah. there. Like, what are those still doing there? <laughs> there, and there are, are a like, lot those of haven't them been also, in service right? in like forty years. <laughs> you know, like what's going on? I so I, it we're, we're making fun, but honestly, the, I would say this this issue and, and the next issue are really fascinating because um, I think one of the things I liked about it is the fact that they really make the point well that Kirk and the crew have been gone right, for five right. years. And that's a long time to be away from Federation space. In five years, a lot of things change. And a lot of things have changed. We see ship designs have changed, going more towards what we know of the the TNG, the original series movies. Yeah. Um, the uniforms have changed to the ugly right. pajamas from the, you know. Um, and uh, it's it's... It's interesting because Kirk and the crew are having to deal with these changes. And I thought that that was a fantastic thing to actually show the passage of time and just how much you would miss knowing about what's going on at quote unquote home when you've been on the outer reaches of space for five years. I like visually how the Enterprise is arriving and the new flagship, the USS Theseus is there. And then there's a frame with this Admiral and he's an odd alien that we've never seen before, Admiral Karaxi. But he's wearing, as you said... I like to call him the Hexa-Admiral because he's got hexagrams (laughs) all over his head. So, How about Badmiral Hexa? That should be his name. Bad there we go. There we go. Is he related to Admiral Marcus from the Kelvin timeline? Because they're very similar. Very similar, for sure. In fact, their outfit looks similar. But he's wearing, as you said, the ugly pajamas from the motion picture. And the nacelles on the Theseus are the design that we get on the refit of the Enterprise in the movies also. So I like the visual contrast here of conveying that passage of time, as you said, with the 1701 arriving back. And it really looks antique in this frame uh, up against the Theseus. I mean, except for the Jonathan Archer's (laughs) NX-class ships, which really look like antiques. But they're off in the background. But, you know, we get the uniforms, we get the new nacelles, we, we get the brighter blue of the hull. It really does convey that passage of time. And like you said, we're setting up this idea here that you go off on this five-year mission, you're away for half a decade, you come back, and everything that you left behind has changed significantly. And as we get into the story, you know, we're told that the Federation is dying. All these things are happening. Things are changing. And the Attorney General Shaw is inviting Kirk to run for president, basically, because she thinks that his leadership is needed to stop some things that are going on 
And uh, we are also introduced to this new group called the Originalists who want to sort of set the Federation back in a sense. Yeah. And, and this is really the thing that's going to set up both of these issues. And uh, I think something that'll probably play into the last arc of the year five mission as they make their way back to Earth, which is this idea that the Federation is dealing with this group called the Originalists, as you mentioned, that are worried about as the Federation grows and expands, there will be less for the worlds that were there when it started as if there's not enough. And it was really fascinating to me to see this because we actually see this in Picard. Uh, and especially if you've read Una's book, this plays out in Picard. This is an issue there. And so apparently there's nothing new under the sun, even in the Star Trek universe. And so, yeah, I found this really fascinating. And again, it feels very much uh, like something Admiral Marcus would be a part of and worried about in the Kelvin timeline. So this is something that we've kind of seen before, these kind of uh, almost like isolationist groups in the Federation, which seems weird. Um, it did seem a, a strange thing to me, at least at this point in Star Trek history, but um, I think they pull it off well enough in these two comics. Well, it's that sense of history repeating. You had the same thing at the end of Enterprise with Terra Prime. You had an isolationist movement. Now, yes. that one made more sense because they were coming off of the Zindi attack and there was this feeling that humans putting themselves out there was endangering the planet. So that made right. more sense. And in this situation, I agree with you. As we're leading into the motion picture era, from what we know on the timeline, there's nothing in particular that I think should trigger that kind of isolationist movement. Except that I think in a society, there's always going to be a group of people who feel that if you're expanding in some way, you are uh, spreading your resources too thin and there's the risk that the way of life that you know is going to go away. And that is probably what's manifesting itself here. Yeah. And it, I mean, What's fu fascinating, too, is they don't have too, many, too long to think about it because then a, a random Klingon ship <laughs> right. shows up and says that the uh, gauntlet, the justice will burn um, and they want Kirk. Uh, and, and we find out, too, that they not only want Kirk, uh, they want him to die, basically, uh, for the umbrage they took with his actions at, uh, on planets like Capella 4 with the Tribbles. Right. And peace, for making them have peace with the Organian. So they're really unhappy with Kirk. But what's interesting is that in issues 13 and 14, we actually find out the fact that the, the Klingons are linked with this right. Admiral, or Badmiral, um, who is going to be using them as a way to, I think, further his isolationist movement, as well as... We find out through Spock and McCoy doing some research that this person has been using people that have been returning yeah. home from the five-year mission as guinea pigs to figure out, you know, I guess vaccines and all of these type of things, but doing it in the most inhumane way, which, again, this just feels like it was right up Admiral Marcus's alley. Yeah, that's true. 
what did you think about these elements? The desire of Karaxi to work with the Klingons to try to uh, create a rift to further his isolationist movement. That I understand. The part about using returnees from five-year missions as sort of guinea pigs in a laboratory, he mentions a vaccine for every disease towards the end of the story. That on its own, I can understand as a story, those two goals of his together, did those mesh for you or did it just seem like two separate ideas that here are two bad things that this admiral is doing? I, I'm I'm hoping that that would maybe play out in further issues because I'm I'm right there with you. I do feel like it felt like we're going to take two really bad things and put them in here to show you why you should hate this admiral. And it, and, and it didn't necessarily seem to correlate with the issues mm-hmm. themselves in, in the sense that like, why would they truly be doing this? Obviously, he says so we can find a cure for every disease, yeah. but... There has to be more behind it than that. So I'm hoping that as we see as we see the idea of the originalists, and that's probably going to be something that, that it's it, it's in contention. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, Kirk uh, tells Shaw at the end that she should be the one that runs for president. Um, and uh, the idea that the, the Enterprise is continuing on its way to Earth, um, I think I think this is going to come in and play later on it did seem to me though as well it's quite brazen for an admiral to be doing something like this where it's so easy to find out like it just seemed a little bit too easy for kurt for spock and mccoy to find out what was going on in the Mm -hmm. first place and i mean there is that moment too where we see that ad the admiral and he's the one that confronts mccoy and spock and he's in this like black uniform that has, you know, uh, like the Starfleet are uh, the uh, medical insignia. Yeah. So maybe he's part of an even more covert group or something. I don't I, know. I maybe took it as being like Section 50. Yeah, exactly. I took it or, as being like Section 31. And this is their medical wing where they're running all kinds of crazy experiments that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Well, and. Throughout the whole thing, he's interested in the Tholian. Right. Like, he wants the Tholian. Like, and so, again, I'm hoping there's some threads here that they're going to pick up on later on. Because that's a that's a big part of uh, the, the part 14 when, you know, he really is interested in this idea that, you know, the Enterprise has run into a Tholian and even maybe has a Tholian with them or something. Which, I wasn't quite clear on that either. So... Uh, it seems like there's more story that needs to be played out. Definitely, there's more story that needs to be played out. I don't know. Maybe he's interested in the Tholian because of some sort of idea of silicon-based life forms and how something to do with them right. could be used in treatments for viruses and other diseases, even in humans. I don't know. Basically, I felt like we have an A story, which is... The whole thing is mainly in issue 14 with Kirk going through the trial with the Klingons. And then we've got a B story, which is about the Federation falling apart in an isolationist group and this bad moral that's doing all of these things. And someone needs to step up and take a leadership role as president. And also, 
another B story that's separate, which would be the medical stuff that's going on. And I could see a story that focused entirely on the medical thing, and it was a McCoy-centered story. They could do a whole, like a four-series comic just on that, where it's not about Kirk, it's about McCoy. He takes center stage. And that would be very interesting. And then do another series, which they might be doing as we move forward, as you mentioned, focusing on the problems within the Federation and the isolationists. The Kirk element here felt like it could be a bottle show. It's sort of like Shades of Grey. Like, you could see where (laughs) the only new footage shot were a few scenes of Kirk in this chamber with the Klingons, and the rest of it are flashbacks to all those classic episodes that they keep mentioning. What I kind of liked about the whole thing, and especially in issue 14, is is Kirk uh, being able to one-up mm-hmm. the Klingons, and, and basically partly because he spent so much time yeah. running into them, we see all that experience pay off. Uh, and then he calls their bluff. You know, he, he calls, he, he's able to figure out that this is not a Klingon of honor. And, and so... They're not actually going to go through with this by taking their own lives and doing what this bad role wanted them to do in the first place. And so I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, we, we see Kirk um, here with a lot of wisdom to realize that what the Federation needs actually is the person who called out their worry to Kirk in mm-hmm. the first place, which is Shaw, the the um, the AG uh, for the Federation. And so... I'm very interested to see how this will play out because uh, I think what I liked about this is is a great setup for this part of the arc for Mm -hmm. five, uh, the year five. Uh, And so I I think they've done a really good job of giving us uh, a reason to stick around and and continue to, you know, read the series. So um, I, I would say for the most part, I really enjoyed both of these Star Trek comics and, I thought that um, even just the idea of the way they talked about coming home was something I'd never thought of before. Like, what would it be like to come yeah. home after you've been out in space? And and I love that the idea that we, we get an idea that the Enterprise has been so far beyond where anybody else has explored. They truly are going where no man has gone before, right? And this this comic brings that home of what it would be like to come back home. Can you come home mm-hmm. again? As Thomas yeah. Wolfe, you know, famously asked. And so. the whole thing with Kirk calling the bluff also illustrates the difference between someone who's been out there exploring for those five years versus the people who are back on Earth or the people who are just administrators of the Federation and have been staying relatively close to home in known space. Because the reason he's able to call their bluff when the others think that they'll go through with it is that the others, like Shaw, believe a stereotypical view of the Klingons. Like, all Klingons believe in honor, and if you push them, they're going to push back harder. Whereas Kirk, because he has this hands-on experience of dealing with the Klingons, over the course of those five years, knows that they're not all that way. He knows how to push their buttons. He knows how to read what they're saying. And that's something that only he could do because of the experience that he's gained. Well, I think uh, we both agree issues 13 and 14, 
excellent issues uh, and and excited to kind of see and and I would say we're we're hopeful then that some of these um pieces of the story will continue to play out because I think that would be yeah. really good. Uh, if they don't leave some of these pieces that are on the board still, I feel, uh, you know, just on the board. Yeah, I do hope they come back to it because there are a couple of interesting ideas established here. The uh, The secondary elements of the story are much more interesting, actually, than the primary element for me, and I do hope they pick them up. Well, we have our uh, last comic we're going to be looking at, and it's uh, a one-shot, and it's Hell's Mirror. And this is Khan in the mere universe and you know i really i thought that this was a fascinating idea because obviously khan is a good person in this universe and to see uh him and his plans and um the way that he is linked up with spock and then the way he ends up linked up with kirk was fascinating uh and to see this battle of wits kind of play out between them here in this universe as opposed to the the you know the prime universe was really interesting to me um and i i thought uh it was quite a fun idea for them to play with this um it is really interesting though to me because i feel like it was a good idea to make this a one shot so it's almost like an elseworlds comic idea uh because this really does play with the Kirk and the Spock uh, that we know from the mirror universe and where their characters go and what they do and give them kind of a completely different trajectory than where we kind of know things go. And so it was, uh, to me, this was a great idea because comics are great at being able to do what if, you know, that's really what this felt like to me. Yeah. Uh, On the last show, we were joking about this and, I said, oh, yeah, Khan, you know, he's a great guy in the mirror universe. He runs an MPO. He just wants to change the world, make everything better. And it turns out that is exactly what he's like in this comic. He's on a mission to establish a federation to bring equality to everyone and to make the galaxy better. And it's, you know, it's the obvious thing to do in the mirror universe where whoever we know in the prime universe, they're just the opposite in the mirror universe, which we know from DS9 is not always the case. And I would say in reality would not always be the case. It's too black and white. But here, that's what we get with Khan. But it does allow the writers to then, as you say, play more with Kirk and Spock from the mirror universe, especially with Kirk. And they also play sort of with an interesting idea here. You know, my my primary takeaway from this is the idea that knowledge is critical and you need to always be open to new ideas and you need to understand issues and you need to know more about the world so that you can make decisions based on facts and knowledge because in the end, if we want to just jump ahead to the end of what happens here, Khan's big weapon, as Kurt keeps calling it, this Satori, which in Buddhism is a, a word that means like a sudden enlightenment. That's what Khan is building. He has this Satori initiative, I think he calls it. And 
in the end, we find out that it's just a giant library. Well, and I, I mean, I kept getting kind of like Fahrenheit yeah, 451 yeah, yeah, vibes, definitely. you know, like the, the and I thought, um, what really struck me about this comic, and, and I, it's strange that I'll go this deep with it, but it really struck me that how we're living in a world right now where things that people don't like are being um, stamped down. Like people are actively trying to eliminate conversation yeah. about things. They're trying to eliminate things they don't like right. to hear by not even listening to them and shutting them down or basically burning them. You know, uh, gosh, uh, as we're recording today, uh, this this new section, um, Twitter is getting in trouble for actively, you know, not letting people tweet about uh, something that, that they don't like, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's just it's so fascinating to me that we're just uh, that, that, that this is what Khan wants for the mere universe. He wants um all of these banned books burned books all of the all of this knowledge this accumulated knowledge that he's been collecting from around the galaxy to release it to everyone and allow that knowledge and allow those ideas to help reconquer the universe not through force but through uh the force of ideas and um i think that's really interesting and and what we see is that Kirk and Spock have been playing him the whole time mm-hmm. and they destroy this library. But at the very end, what I kind of loved too is that Kirk's memories that he had implanted or said he had implanted, those are his real memories. Like his family growing up before he was, they were killed and he was taken away. He had this beautiful kind of idyllic family life. They read these classic novels. And in fact, at the end, he pulls out Once in Future mm-hmm. King um, by T.H. White and starts mm-hmm. reading it. And it's like, oh, could this be the spark that changes everything? And it just takes one idea that can blow things open. And so, well, and that book is the one that his mother is reading to him in the flashback earlier yes, in yes. the story. Yeah. So basically he's had a banned book this mm-hmm. whole time, you know? Um, and, and so I, I think to me, what it, I love the message of this comic and I really enjoyed this comic because it seemed to be to say, look, the, I, the freedom of speech, it's so important. Freedom of ideas, it's so important because, um, the, the, the answer to, uh, bad speech is, is not, taking it away it's 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 more conversation it's more ideas you know it's it's challenging those ideas with ideas you think are better you know so yeah. i i, I, I like should that. just point out that but when you say bad speech you're talking about simply a view of an issue that you disagree with right not yes. hate speech right so oh, i just yeah. want to make that clear we're not saying that it's okay to say absolutely anything that you want no matter how hateful it is what we're what we're talking about is the idea that you can have two rational views of an issue that should lead to a discussion but in today's world often each side wants to cancel out the other side they want right. to actually right. get rid of any potential for discussion and that's very true what i find interesting about the story is that Khan is correct about the importance of 
having this knowledge and having these books available and the potential for these to lead to a better world. Kirk, by pulling the book out at the end, by destroying the library and by pulling that book out at the very end of the comic, is acknowledging that he also understands the great importance of this, which is why they destroy the library in the first place. He himself knows it's important. He pulls out the book, but he doesn't want other people to have access to it because he knows that if they do, then the grip that the empire has on everyone could weaken. And as far as Khan is concerned, there's like a a naivety on Khan's part in thinking that simply making that stuff available will somehow change the world. That's that is a really interesting read because I I read it differently at the end mm. which was that because the whole thing is 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 Kirk has has read his mind. Uh Kirk, you know, tells Khan, "Oh, these were just memories that were implanted in me." And what we find out in the end is 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 that it was not memories that had been implanted in him and these were actually his memories this was actually his life Mm -hmm. yeah and so what i was thinking at the end is that when he pulls out that book that it's more a recognition for him or a subconscious recognition for him that there is something special about these these books and that by him pulling out the book to i got the feeling like he's not read this book and 20 years but something mm, inside of him is is because those memories have been brought back to the surface um he's now in a place to which he he may he spock may have triggered the very change to which Khan was wanting in the first place yeah, it's entirely possible there there is this argument between it's not an argument but Spock is kind of pushing Kirk and Kirk really wants to deny the fact that those memories were real, right? And he tells Spock to, you know, get the hell out of here. And then Spock leaves Kirk's quarters and then Kirk pulls the book out. Yeah, for me, I can see your reading. I can see mine. It's not clear whether it's been in the drawer for a really long time and he's just now pulled it out. The final word is hope, which... I would say probably supports your reading more than mine. At the same time, I think that if you look at this as a parallel to the world that we live in, there is this feeling that those in charge know the importance of facts and knowledge, but they want to take it away from people because that way they can protect their own position. And so I felt like maybe the way Kirk has the book open at the end, It really can be read both ways, but he's sort of flipping through it almost like it is something that he pulls out from time to time and reads, which is why I got the feeling that he understands the importance, which again is why he destroyed the library. Well, and I I think what I love about it is the fact that this is the type of thing that you do want to leave a little bit ambiguous, right? It makes it more fun to allow you to have those discussions. Yeah. And they're able to do that in... 26 pages in a comic. So it was a good story. Yeah, I thought so too. So, well, I'm definitely excited, Chris, because I think we've got a great uh, interview coming up here with Kirsten as we talk about her latest Voyager book. So, Chris, I think it's time to get to the Delta Quadrant. 
Well, Chris, uh, we are very excited to have back uh, Kirsten here to talk about her brand new Voyager book, To Lose the Earth. And Kirsten, it is just wonderful that this book is here. Uh, I'm very excited that it is here as well. There was a long time during which I'm not sure at all it would ever be here. So. Oh, Yay. I can only imagine. <laughs> well, so many people have been waiting for so yes, had long. I, had, I, had I had any forethought at all, I might not have ended that last one on quite the cliffhanger that I did. But, <laughs> you know, live and learn. Well, it is uh, It is really exciting. And, and as you mentioned there, um, I bringing this together like to to get this to come together finally um i would love to kind of hear uh about the process of of bringing this series you know to a close for now yeah well the first thing to remember is that when i first outlined these two books together architects of infinity and to lose the earth i did not know i was going to be bringing the series to an end at this point in time so I, I, by the time I was finishing Architects, I did know, but it had its own heavy lifting to do. So the, the vast majority of the changes had to happen with uh, this one. And the real issue was, well, now that I know that it's ending in this way, where do I want to leave these people? You know, and some of that was um, within my control. And some of it uh, was, was agreed upon to service future things. So, um, so yeah, it wasn't, uh, not every single choice was necessarily my, my first choice, but I was happy with all of them. I mean, it just, you know, um, in a lot of ways, all of these books since Destiny have been a collaborative process. And even though I have had my own little corner of the universe pretty much all to myself, uh, from time to time, it still requires a little bit of, um, you know, sharing my toys with my friends. And so, um, so that, so that played into it as well. Um, you know, and I had always sort of known that this was going to be a Harry book and a Harry story. Mm. And, um, I felt like he was sort of long overdue for one of those. He had had some lovely parts to play earlier in the stories, but, in a lot of ways, this one was always going to center on him. And that's not necessarily either the first choice you would make for a final book. You would maybe want to spread out the stories a little bit more um, amongst uh, all of the main characters that we have all come to know and love. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of challenging balancing work to do here. And um, ultimately, a lot of the choices that I made you know, especially after the first half of the book was over, were about, well, knowing that these are going to be the last things that we see, who are the people I really want to see together and what do I really want to hear them talking about? You know what I mean? Um, obviously, it all has to serve the plot of the story that we're telling, but uh, I was way more interested in sort of the emotional space that everybody was in mm-hmm. and, um, and, and therefore, you know, what would, how they would be responding and what they would be really concerned about at any given moment. So if that. Mm-hmm. I think that really stands out as well. Certainly for me, the emotional yeah. space, of the characters, as you mentioned. 
how does that process play out when, say, you want to go with in one direction with an element of the story or a character, but as you said, it needs to also serve the future, what's to come in Star Trek later on. How does that process play out uh, for you as the writer in terms of uh, having that idea and then maybe talking to others and finding out that you need to go in a different way? I think, um, I mean, in 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 this case, it really did determine the substance of the, of the scenes, which is not necessarily always the case. Um, well, just, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to be spoilery here, but, but the, sure. the, the big sort of issue at hand was the Paris family and whether or not they would stay or go. And honestly, I could make compelling arguments on both sides, but it works out better for everybody else if I allow them to stay. So, um, so that scene became what it was between Tom and Bolana. Honestly, I think they would have been having the same conversation either way, but the answer might have been different um, had it not been for the needs of, of other things. Mm-hmm. Well, I is it okay then for us if we give a spoiler warning so people know that um, we want you to have the freedom to be able to talk about the, the book? Um, so we'll just let everybody know we may spoil this rotten. So... If you haven't read the book at this point, we're going to let you know. Um, and if you listen beyond this point, it's your fault. So um, I you <laughs> you mentioned the Harry thing and, and, and that I, I think you broke my heart with Harry uh, in this book. Yeah, um, because he is a character that I think like you even mentioned within the story, you know, with um the other captain talking about why is this kid never, why is he only a Lieutenant? This is ridiculous, you know, and, and, and just what he yeah. goes through in this book is so a uh, heart wrenching. And yet by the end scene where he was, um, when he was talking to Gwen and there's like this moment where he realizes this person is kind of interesting and like he enjoyed that conversation. And like, there's a, there's just this light that kind of happens at the end for him that he has a daughter. He yeah. has um, people that he loves around him. He's on a ship that he, that means the world to him. And there's this possibility in front of him now. And so, um, but to get there was so heartbreaking. Um, and I really appreciated yeah. that you kind of took him through the fire because in many ways that character needed that metamorphosis. Right. I mean, he had been through it at the beginning yes. with Libby, mm-hmm. right? Understanding uh, from the get-go that that was not the right relationship for him. And to be honest, so much of what happened here was dictated by Nancy mm-hmm. and her character. I have been struggling with Nancy since, oh, uh, let's see here. Pocket full of lies, certainly. Um, but I wonder if it goes, no, it's really pocket full of lies because up until that point in my, you know, limited sort of imagination of what the future could possibly hold, um, I sort of felt like Harry had probably found in Nancy the right person for him, somebody who would really um, be able to build a great relationship with him. But Nancy was somebody who, um, you know, she was a blank slate when we started this. She was established in the Corps of Engineers books, but really not given any real character beyond a physical description. And so 
the more I kept sort of putting her through things and then seeing how she responded to them, the more I began to understand who she was sort of wanting to be. And I, I, you know, it sounds absurd because of course I'm creating all of these characters and they could do whatever the hell I damn well please. But there is a certain kind of emotional satisfaction I get when I feel like the characters are actually living authentic lives as opposed to um, serving my plot the way I might want them to or need them to. And gosh, the more that happened to Nancy between the um, being possessed by the alien consciousness and then suddenly finding herself pregnant, it just felt like her life was spinning out of control. And none of the ways in which you might work to sort of rein that in were available to me because the continuing crises that were being faced were such that she couldn't just press pause and take a break and, and kind of figure shit out. Um, and I will tell you that when this story started, I still believed that Harry and Nancy were going to end up together with that baby. I really did. And then she kept doing things like, um, you know, uh, how to explain. Like when she first was presented with the idea that, that she could have a holographic mm-hmm. body and she jumped right on it. You know, that sort of happened organically in the writing. And then I was sort of like, wait, who does that? Like, nobody does that. That's bananas, you know? But then I, but then I forced myself to think more deeply about it and be like, well, why might somebody do that? And the answers sort of began to reveal themselves. So, so by the time I got to, you know, the last moments of the story where you're trying to understand what went wrong with that consciousness transfer, um, it felt better and more real to me to have that have been something that was actually within her control and something that on a conscious or subconscious level she really wanted because so much of what she had wanted up until this point had been denied her by circumstances. And I just, I really wanted to give her the opportunity to take control of her life in a way that she just hadn't been able to. And unfortunately what that meant was the story, you know, was not going to end happily for her and Harry in the, in the traditional happy ending, they go off, they get married and right off into the sunset story. But at the same time, I do consider it to be a, a happy thing or a positive thing or a life affirming thing when people really are honest with themselves about what they want and need, because if they're not, then their future lives are doomed, whether they're together or not. Right. Right. right? Well, and, and I mean, you know, one shouldn't be in a relationship in that way out of that type of obligation, you know, because they're, you're dooming the right. relationship anyway. So the fact that she was finally honest with herself and Harry as to what she wanted and stopped playing any kind of role um, and um, spoke the truth about her feelings um, and just who she is. I think I think in general, we kind of found out who Nancy is, which is somebody who may never actually want to get married. It seems like like that's just not who she is. Yeah. And that's OK to find out yeah. to be that person getting married you don't have to do that right right it's not for everyone yeah i love that but she sort of she sort of found herself trapped in that path and there are so many good reasons to do it. like there's all the pressure is on one side of the equation and it takes a great deal of courage to stand up and say yeah but this is not actually for me right right um and and i think that for harry to know that now as opposed to you know a few years down the road um, is ultimately to the good. And, 
and giving him the opportunity to sort of begin with a clean slate with his child felt like a strong choice for him. Um, Like owning, owning like the reality of that. And also, um, you know, in terms of Gwen, like I have no idea what that relationship is going to end up being. I just know they're going to end up being in some kind of a relationship because of the connection that they both have to that child. And, and if, you know, going forward, I can imagine 50 different ways that that might play out. And I have no idea what the most interesting or exciting one would be at this point. Right. Well, and I think that's the thing that makes it fun, you know, um, because like you mentioned, if, if this is the last time we see these characters like this, they're, are possibilities which you can make up in your mind right. as to where you would want those characters to go. And so I think it's open and ended enough that um, it's really fun, but it also um, it sets the character that we care about in Harry in a much more um, stable and um, emotionally healthy place to begin the healing process that he needs to go through as yeah. well. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted that... That, that was something that was important to me for everybody, that none of these stories were coming to an end. Everything was going to be left in a place where going forward, anybody could imagine what might happen next. You know, I don't think I closed any doors. Yeah, no, I, I think that was the thing that was so exciting. It's like I felt conclusion and yet it was it was much in the same way that, you know, like when the next generation ended, it was much more open ended than, say, like Deep Space Nine. Um, you know, where right. they're sitting there playing poker and then you can imagine all of these things that might happen to these characters if you never see them again, which is 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 a nice place to right. be. And I felt like to me, right. um, I called this section Love You Too, um, because I really <laughs> loved um and it and it really came to the town down to the Gwyn story, but we also saw this idea play out uh, with, you know, um Tom and Bellana and even uh, O'Donnell and Fife. Um and um and yep. then of course with Gwen and Patel. Um this whole idea of her coming to realize that what true love is is being less self selfish and more selfless. Um, and true love is sacrificial. Yeah. And, and to see that play out in these different characters' relationships was really beautiful to me because, um, you know, I think the Hollywood version of love is that you give me everything I want and make me feel good. But in reality, we know from life that true love is one where you're willing to sacrifice for one another. Um, and and you have the re- mutual yeah. respect to do that. And to see that play out in, in um, those different character relationships was really beautiful uh, and I love that, like you even had the quote in there where Gwen is just going off, and she's like, "I've been selfish and stupid, and I've wallowed. It's uh, what it's given me, and you know all these things." And it just it was nice to have her break through in this moment. But then you play that story out with a bunch of other different character relationships in the story, so that. Um, they all build on each other, and that's one of the things that I love about your books. You don't just do it with one character; you do it with a bunch of characters. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, sort of goes to theme, like big picture theme stuff. But, um, but I think some of that is just sort of my general outlook on life and relationships, right? They're constantly evolving things. Otherwise, I don't know why we tell right. stories. About, right. <laughs> and you're, and, and you're, and you're, you're sort of, you know, in these long-standing franchises where people want to see 
the same characters in situations over and over again because they take such joy from watching these people interact. The biggest challenge is finding a way to have them continue to grow and develop without necessarily changing too much of the dynamics, but also, you know, finding meaningful new places to go. It, and it gets harder and harder the longer they're together, right? I mean, truth be told, once the seven-year mission ended, none of these people should have ever probably seen or spoken to each other again. Yes, they had established these great friendships and stuff, but boy, wouldn't you think you would go get a new job at that point and find a new ship and like find a new, right? right? And, and yet you think. here they are again together, you know, so many years later. Yeah, it was just, yeah. Well, and one of the... Th- one of the things that um, that I really appreciated was that Tom and Bellana, in this idea of like loving each other, they have that really honest conversation about Tom saying he even says to her, "Look, I've never pulled this card in our relationship before, but I'm going to pull it because mm-hmm. I have to trust that you'll understand where I'm coming from in this." And like, I mm-hmm. kind of teared up in that moment because to watch those two characters be able to have that conversation and nobody's yelling at each other was incredibly beautiful because it just shows the maturity of the way that their relationship has changed, that they can have these like heartfelt moments where neither is angry, but they're able to share how they feel and, and, and what they feel. And like his, the, 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 the the beauty in that was where you took them, which is they are scared, especially Bolana. She's scared to take that step because she's never had that life and neither is Tom. And they're scared to even dream of what that could look like if they were just on Earth. And it's just right. like, but it's it's such a beautiful thing that they would dream something that would scare them to death but could be the best thing that ever happened to them at the same time. Like, it's just so great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it makes me think back to, you know, the first disagreements they were having in full circle when their child was kidnapped and they could not communicate with each other without ripping each other to pieces. And yeah, learning how to do that is part of learning how to stay married. You know, because marriages don't survive that the behavior that they were exhibiting the first time Absolutely. No, they, they, they can't. Um, and it just, it, it was something too that like you did with O'Donnell and Fife in the way in which, you know, O'Donnell comes to bat for him and is like, I, he, and then he proposes mm-hmm. this massive thing, you know, to Starfleet and, and, and this idea of them, you know, going across universes. Um, thank mm-hmm. you, Beatles. Uh, and um, so <laughs> the whole idea of of him willingly willing to sacrifice basically what he's going to do for, you know, who knows how long um, to allow him to live, right. fight, uh, you know, O'Donnell to live this dream was just incredibly beautiful because it also like you weren't just showing the the love between like married couples, but there's genuine love that happens between friends. Um, and I thought that was the other beautiful thing because so many times I feel like in our culture, we feel like we have to romanticize things for whatever relationship it is. And yet some of our most important relationships in life don't have anything to do with sex. They have to do with friendship, deep friendship that goes beyond anything else. And so that was really nice to see happen. Yeah, I agree. And that was very, very 
consciously done. You know, there were moments when I was crafting the conversation between Gwen and her mother where I was really trying to sort out what her feelings were for Patel and what that relationship really, how you were going to define that. And it could have gone, I think, several different places, but the one that just felt most organic between those two, given everything we had seen, going back to the beginning of Architects when they're in the shuttle being snippy with each other, you know, is these guys are just best friends, you know? But they're two people who've never really right. had a best friend. <laughs> so they don't even realize what they have, you know, when they're in the middle of it. It took this for them to both be able to acknowledge, oh, that's what you are. You're my friend. <sighs> yeah. And, and, and the O'Donnell Fife thing, I mean, I have loved those two gentlemen ever since uh, Children of the Storm. And, but it didn't occur to me until now that Fife kind of owed O'Donnell more than we had seen him give, you know, up until now. Like, O'Donnell taking a chance on him after that mutiny was huge. And, um, and to know that Fife didn't take it for granted um, and was sort of trying to earn it every day after that made me like him so much more, you know? So. Well, and the one thing that I've learned in my life, and, you know, you were talking about this idea of, like, why would these people be together for so long? And I've I've come to to realize, and it's a stupid thing to realize because it's just human existence. But like, community is what matters to us, and these people are right. a community, and that is what keeps these crews together. And people talk about the the ridiculousness of you know these crews staying together, but honestly, I feel like in Starfleet, if you're going to be on these missions for however many years. Creating a sense of community is a really important thing, and it, it when I think about it in, in that way, it, it does make sense for them to stay together longer rather than not, because when you create that sense of community and home, because you're on the same ship day after day, um, it's the same thing as when you create uh, the same community with the people you work with or the church you're at or you know any of those types of places where community happens, where it it becomes home and for them this is this is home you know and uh i think there's a there is a real beauty in that and maybe that's one of the reasons we all gravitate towards these stories so much is that we love the idea of community and we want community in our lives and maybe sometimes we're missing it so when we watch you know voyager or deep space nine and we see these characters who love each other and they fight and bicker and everything but they still will to have each other's backs um it reminds us of, of the things we want most in life which is to be known and loved yeah i agree completely yeah and and i think you know a lot of um a lot of what's happening in our world right now has us questioning the idea of what sure. is community yeah right and mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and how fragile it actually can be and that like so many things in life, it's a conscious choice to keep building it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, um, I think that's totally true in individual relationships, be they marriages, friendships, whatever. The, the staying together doesn't just happen because of the circumstances around you. It happens because you make yes. choices every day to make it. Absolutely. Uh, well, and it, it's, be, it's something that, you know, for me, it's a spiritual concept, but the idea that love is is a is a choice. You know, it's not just a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, we choose to love one another, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It starts out as a feeling, exactly. but it becomes um, a choice. And that choice reinforces that feeling um, over and over again uh, as you move forward in life. And so, yeah, I just think there's there is such a beauty in this book because of that. Um, and, and again, it's one of the things that I thought made the book the, the perfect end point at the moment just because we're in a place where um, – we see characters who we've known for so long dealing with each other in a way that's so much more emotionally healthy than they've ever been before. And and that's what you want for those characters because you love them too. They're a part of you, you know? And so, um, oh man, sorry. Getting a little teary about talking about this. Goodness. Um, <laughs> it's okay. So I had to ask this. So one of the most interesting things, and I think them saying this right, the Edremaya. Yes, okay. the Edremaya. So um, they want to drive my car. Um, they do. And uh, do. I was so interested in this this species. You know, we finally learn who the architects of infinity are. And so mm-hmm. um, you even mentioned... Um, that this was quite a challenge for you uh, to come up with in the acknowledgments. And so I just wanted to kind of hear about the creation of this culture who basically speaks in math, which would mean we would never talk because that's not me. Um, and it kind of reminded me. Right. Of, I, <laughs> I had to me. learn. I'm terrible at math, so I'm totally <laughs> yeah, out of that conversation. I had to learn a great deal more about math than um, I ever really wanted to. Actually, so um, – so it's interesting because this species began for me um, as a sort of objective correlative for the idea of people who are devoted to building bridges, right? They, they exist to, to build bridges, you know, to continue their journeys, right? And so that, that sort of theme concept, whatever, was always in the back of my brain for all of the stories, but really for me to find who the Edremaya were. So then it becomes a matter of, okay, but now what, what does a species that has lived for millions of years and evolved so far beyond whatever they were at the beginning into what they are and can do now, like, what does that mean for them? So rather than, you know, I, I, in the in televised and filmed trek a lot of times you default to forehead aliens because there's only so much you can do in terms of the time it takes to sort of really world build for a different culture but in books we don't have that limitation so i can imagine whatever the hell i want for these people and you know to me thinking about the, the, the different kinds of barriers that exist between communication. Looking back, I realize now how many of my stories really do reflect that theme, how hard it is to establish communications with people who think differently than you do. And so the most extreme version of that became to give them a language that just simply didn't contain concepts that are so integral to who we are, right? Mm. But then I didn't know if it was even possible to do. So I reached out to a dear friend of mine who I met, I mean, back when I had written Full Circle, um, who had been a reader of mine. And uh, 
And I just found his comments and his thoughts about what I was writing so interesting that we ended up just sort of establishing a relationship outside of that. And he's a, you know, brilliant math teacher. So when I, when I first came up with this notion, the first thing I did was email him and go, do you think this is possible? Like, could you teach me enough math to create a language so that this could be real? And he was like, oh, absolutely. And we started with basic terms. And then, you know, there were, in the initial planning of it, there were versions of this story where that whole process of establishing communication went on a lot longer than it did in the final version. The problem that I came to once I finally got here was that the fact that we were wrapping all of this up necessitated that I couldn't spend that much time on that particular part of the story. But I loved that I was still able to retain that element of them, that, that they were never going to be able to fully understand us because there are just so many things that we're not capable of. And yet they return the favor as well, right? They have technology and things that can also push us forward in new ways if we can settle down and, you know, figure out how that all works. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was it, it was really funny because as they were uh, learning to speak to them, you know, they're, it almost felt like, you know, when you were at those old computers and it was nothing but a terminal that you're just like inputting mm-hmm. command codes for. Um, yep. So basically yep. you're, you know, it's not just, yeah, you're speaking in this this way that, we're just not familiar with whatsoever. Um, but they talked about this idea of like how for them, they would never misunderstand each other, you know, and right. how great would that be? So, um, right. so it was, it was yeah. just really, it's cool. just extremely limiting to be, yes. when you get that specific, mm-hmm. it's extremely yep. limiting. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things about language. Yeah. Well, and, and what it can do and what it can't do. And what I loved is that one of the bridges that they built with us was music because music speaks a language that is based on math, but it also connects to then the emotion as well. And so that helped them kind of understand us in a way that they couldn't before they heard Harry play. Right. So, yeah, I did have one question because I kind of saw this really interesting correlation. I don't know if it meant anything, but the way the Edramaya are and what kind of Nancy became as a hologram, almost like there seemed to be some kind of like correlation there because there is this like ability of like that she could, if there was a possibility for her to fully be integrated digitally, you know, she could live forever in much the same right. way. And so was that intentional for you? I think that what was intentional was finding so many people in places of transition with different capabilities on either side of that, right? So in the first place, I am always reluctant to solve problems like dying, right? I don't think we want to create technology that is ever going to open up the door for all of us just being able to live forever because then who decides who gets to be benefit from that amazing ability? Never mind the question of, because, you know, we've seen it from time to time in Star Trek, but I think it's a really valid point to wonder for people who are extremely long lived, do they ever reach a point where, you know, it's sort of lost its luster, you know, the, the Death Wish episode of Voyager was a sort of, I think, really interesting exploration of that idea, right? 
Um, so, so the interesting thing for Nancy is that just like Valf, you know, um, just like Patel in some ways, is these are people who are kind of trapped in the middle of the bridge and they can go one way or the other. And, you know, in Nancy's case, what she needed was just for a little while to be able to experience what was happening to her without all of the concurrent emotions bombarding her at all times. And even though that wasn't the purpose of the hologram, that's what she made of it because that's what she needed desperately. Right. Um, and it's a thing that you, I, you know, you sort of wish for people who are overwhelmed by all kinds of different struggles, wouldn't it be nice if they could just step back for a minute and not have to deal with certain things and then focus on the stuff that's really problematic um, or the stuff that in her case makes her remember who she actually is and what she's good at. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't super conscious of all of this as I was writing it. It's in the looking back on it that I, that I begin to be able to more fully understand the things that were, that I was really fascinated by or that were working on me while I was, you know, while that story was being written. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. If that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And I, I can imagine that when you're in the thick of it, you know, you can't necessarily see how everything in your brain is connecting. You just know that it's all flowing out of you because those are thematic elements in which you're you're wanting um, and, and they're coming out in the writing. And so, no, it, it makes complete sense. Yeah, which yeah. shows that why it feels like such a more organic yeah. story. And I trust that very, very yeah. deeply. I don't always know why certain decisions happen when I'm in the middle of writing something, but unless they feel just completely like, oh, well, that would never happen or that can never, you know, whatever – I sort of let it live for a while and then and let it sort of suck for a while until <laughs> the moment where, you know, it either presents itself as having made sense for a reason I couldn't see at the time or I realize, no, 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 that just actually can't be made to work. So, Kirsten, while we're talking about holograms, this question's a little bit off topic for the book, but, you know, some time has passed since your last novel and the holograms have been used in the lit. But of course, you worked on Star Trek Picard and we get the Rios holograms in there. And first of all, I was wondering how much you were involved in putting those holograms in there. But my bigger question is in Star Trek at the moment, there's, I feel, a push that is stronger than ever towards representing diversity. Yes. And how do you see the idea of, uh, the way we've shown diversity in the past in Star Trek with various aliens and now as our technology and society advances, are holograms sort of that next step of, of representing growing diversity? Well, the problem with holograms, ultimately I find holograms extremely problematic, right? Because the, the issue is sentience, right? If, as long as they're just tools, then there's only one way in which we ultimately need to relate to them. Once they become a life form, which I firmly believe the doctor is, I firmly believe Moriarty is, right? We have a handful of holograms who have exceeded their programming potential for a variety of reasons that I think fall into that weird classification of new life form. Don't quite know what to do with it, but, new, you know, but the idea, I guess I, in the same way I want to preserve the idea that death is a reality in our existence, I also want to preserve the reality that tools can just be tools. So, so 
to have every hologram suddenly need to have its own rights and its own life. And, you know, like now it's a different thing. Now we're not telling a story about these interesting tools. Now we're telling a story about just a new species. Um, and so I don't, I, I, in Voyager, I have, you know, I have, I have no choice but to deal with this with the doctor. He is what he is. He's had the experiences he's had. And he's a great deal of fun to sort of take apart and put back together again in new ways. Um, you know, but I also felt like in the, you know, Dinara Pell's hologram in that episode when the doctor first did this, she was sort of limited by the circumstance of she's a member of an alien species. She's never going to stay on the ship forever, whatever. But yeah, Nancy could have stayed on the ship forever. So I really did have to find a way to limit the potential of her being able to retain that body forever because I, I didn't want that door to be opened. Um, and I don't know that right now it's necessary for that door to be opened, right? Um, but I still wanted to explore the differences between what life must feel like in that kind of a body as opposed to in our organic bodies. And as far as the creation of the other holograms that we're using, you know, I think, I think most people tend to err on the side of tools because most people haven't gone deeply into the idea of what a hologram could be. You know, I have that luxury because I've been playing with the doctor's character for God knows how many years now. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, in most cases, it's just, a an extension of, of technological abilities that doesn't really hold any much meaning beyond that at this point. It might, it might reflect in interesting ways on the psychology of the person who creates them and the reasons one might do that. Um, and for me, like that's the most interesting part of the choices that were made around Rios. But, um, but yeah, in these stories, uh, I'm, I'm just not, I don't know. I just, I'm just not all that interested in embracing holograms as a new life form. We now need to treat as a separate species and in that way. But other people might mm, be interesting, you know? Yeah. I think, I mean, it's one mm. of those things like, do you, you could run into the same problem in star Wars. Do you turn droids basically into, you know, sentient beings or are they just right. tools? So I think that's, a, it is a good question. Right. It's a, you know, it's definitely a but sci-fi in star, question. In star Wars, in Star Wars, you know, I, I tend to think of the droids as friends. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, and in Star Trek, we tend to think of these technological creations as tools because the point is for us to be having these experiences, right? Um, there's no reason why Starfleet couldn't build a ship and staff it with automated people and let them go out and get the information we need. If it's all just about gathering knowledge about what's out there, there's way safer ways to do it than what we're doing in Star Trek. But the reason we do it is because it's not about just the information. It's about the experiences that we as human beings gather by seeking out this information and then by incorporating it into ourselves. It's how, it's how we are going to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that idea. <laughs> I, mean, I just think that's what makes this universe so uniquely valuable to the conversations being had in sci-fi. Well, and that was something you, because you had mentioned earlier about this idea of uh, Edramaya building bridges and, um, you know, it comes down to <laughs> where we, the Eureka moment is a yellow submarine. Uh, and mm-hmm. I really liked how Elkins was trying to help the crews who are working on these problems understand that 
the Edramaya and that we are actively, if we're going to understand that we're going to actively have to put ourselves into their thought process, figure out how they think and put ourselves into their shoes. And I just loved, you know, how relevant that is. You know, if you're going to find a way to communicate across the universe, it's going to be difficult, especially with species mm-hmm. like this. But I, I thought that this was such a beautiful message for something that we have lost in today's society of actively trying to learn how to communicate with one another when we don't, we aren't understanding each other. And instead of just shutting each other down, like we have been doing, um, the whole thought process is, no, I need to try and put myself literally in that person's shoes. Well, figuratively in that person's shoes and try and think like they would. Why would they think like that? And so that I can understand them. And, and, And this whole idea of understanding, it's like, Man, maybe we should all just pile into a yellow submarine because because it seems like mm-hmm. that's going to be the only answer. Maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the 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 tool that is discovered through this through that particular storyline here is questioning assumptions, right? Like the first step in building that bridge when you find yourself at these sort of impasses is questioning not just what they're figuring out, but also. What assumptions have I made based on my own experiences Mm. about that person before I even know that that's true? And so in, you know, in this case, it was fairly simple math, right? We knew very little about the Edramite. They had taken a series of actions and that those were the only puzzle pieces we had. And for a lot of people, those puzzle pieces add up to aggression. You know, they took one of our ships. You don't get to do that. Well, except that you do if you're a species that doesn't understand human relationships and how much we care about each other, you know? They left a million of their own behind when they needed to to achieve a goal, right? So so, so that's really the area that I'm, because I have been struggling for so long myself to figure out just this question. How do you communicate with people when it seems impossible, right? And... And I loved the idea that there was somebody there who could give voice to that sense of, well, first of all, step back, question your own biases, set them aside, and then you might have a chance at figuring some of this out. But before you've even done that work, there's very little hope that you're going to be able to do that. It just struck me as so important um, and and something that, uh, you know, I think, you know, Star Trek obviously speaks to uh, with its whole idea of, uh, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And the only way to do that is to be able to uh, learn to communicate, even with those that don't don't agree with you, you know. Um, right. And, uh, and to or learn. Or nothing like you. Right. And exactly. I mean, l- literally nothing like you. It, everything is completely the opposite of what you are. So, which, right. you know, you did here with Adramaya, who are the exact opposite of everything that we hold dear, they don't, you know? Um, and so to find a way to build a bridge to them um, was yeah. something that like, how do you do that? Because I mean, when you think about it, they are across the universe from us in the way that they think in the way that they I, act. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, too, because, you know, I've, uh, I've seen in some early conversations about this, even though it's only been out just a little while, comparisons to the Children of the Storm, 
And again, I didn't do this consciously, but I, now I'm looking at it and finding it interesting that that first alien species that I created who we shared a similar problem with, like they're, they're, they're nothing like us and whatever their agenda is, you know, O'Donnell was the only person who was able to find a, 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 just a sliver of common ground from which to begin to build, but they were children, <laughs> right? And in some ways what they needed was their mom, which is what we went out and found for them, right? But here we find ourselves, and yes, a similar situation, these people are full-ass, you know, full-grown adults, and they, you know, have lived, been around a really long time and have their own desires and agendas that have literally nothing to do with us. So it's, it's funny because I do see the parallels, but I also think, at least as I was creating it, I certainly wasn't retreading um, that kind of ground. I just didn't, I, I couldn't have told you until now, right. like, why? I wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, and I, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we started with children, and here, like you said, where we've graduated to adulthood, um, and, yeah. and again, it's the the main issue, and I, I think this is what I like about the reality of the situation, like, there's no reality in any of this, but, um, right. you know, but right. the reality of, of coming across these alien species and how much different it would be to... Uh, you know, uh, to speak to them, like to, to understand them. And so um, I think that's something that would, it, it just, it wouldn't be easy to do. And so to um, play with that idea, I think is really, really smart. Um, and uh, because that's, I think, and sometimes in Star Trek, it's a little too easy um, yeah. and it wouldn't be easy. Yeah. And I think the other, the other piece of it that I found late in the game but made me very happy was different as they are from us. They were trying to do the same thing from their side. They were trying to figure out how do we bridge this communication gap? You know, they just went about it in a very different way than we were in terms of, you know, taking Valve and transforming Valve and being able to use him as that instrument. So I was really struck too in this, this whole thing um, of right. when to let it be uh, because O'Donnell obviously goes way beyond where he he should with his desire to know and it kind of struck me and I, you've probably seen it but in indiana jones and in the kingdom of crystal skull we have that struggle between um the uh character spalco who's played by uh kate blanchett wanting to know but not knowing when it's best to not know or to leave. And Indy has the wisdom because of his experiences to know when it's best to let go. Um, and um, I really thought this was so smart because, you know, there is a time and a place for us to know things. Um, and there are going to be, I mean, especially when you're dealing with what they're doing with on Star Trek, there are going to be times when you're, it is just incapable. It, yeah. You're not going to be capable of knowing because it's going to be too much or, and to know that line, I just, I really love that discussion because it comes down to wisdom. Um, and um, that's just not something that O'Donnell had a lot of in this book. He's so driven by his thirst to know, but that can be super dangerous when um, we aren't actually ready for what we'd find out. Yeah. I think, I think in some ways though, O'Donnell, I mean, he's certainly grown throughout the course of these books, but he's, he begins as such a broken person. He can barely communicate mm, with his own crew, yeah. you know, let alone anybody else. And 
along the way, he developed a certain um, fluency with human emotions that he didn't have before. But that didn't change the fact that, you know, the one thing in life that mattered to him the most, that he, that gave him emotional security and gave him wholeness was that relationship with his wife and the certainty that he could, if he just worked hard enough, solve their problem in terms of procreating. Because on some level, it's just math and science. So you put the right chemicals together and you're going to get what you need. That desire had never left him, right? It just hadn't found a place to really be expressed. And the more complex I made the Edramaya and their technology, the more I realized that he was the one person among our crew who would have absolutely no ability to censor his own desires in that regard. You know, um, he just kept dragging everybody further and further and further across those lines. And, you know, to their credit, most of the more experienced seasoned officers who have been out in the universe confronting the unknown on the regular for years and years and years um, were able to see the dangers in that, Right. And either their guts told them, like Farkas, hang on, guys, can we slow this down a little bit? Or, you know, just their years of experience in the case of Janeway, you know, there's ways to think about this. Not every gift is one we get to unwrap, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that the effort isn't worthwhile. Um, he received lots of wise counsel from his companions, but it didn't change the fact that his drive was purely emotional. You know, there are, there are plenty of people among mm -hmm. us whose drive is dictated by the thing about themselves that they need to fix, you know, and that's what he needs. He, for him, the solution is knowing more. If I can understand everything that I will come to the right conclusion. Um, and so no one could tell him, no, I, I, I felt it, you know, it's, it's never pleasant, fun, whatever, to push people into their own darknesses but that's also the value of telling these stories, right? Is to try to, to find some light by going to those places that are less pleasant sometimes. Well, and by doing that, I think one of the things that these books do well, and I think one of the things that, you know, um, you've rightly been praised for in your work here with Star Trek is that you let characters do that because that's how we grow as human beings. Mm -hmm. We have to face our darknesses, our weaknesses, um, and, um, learn um, through our strengths to be able to overcome those, but also be able to learn to lean on others when we're not strong enough to do right. that. And I think that's the beauty of of the relationship, as we were talking about earlier, the the friendship that that O'Donnell and Five have, yeah. um, where uh, he O'Donnell can actually, you know, when somebody points it out, he can actually see what his, his the issue yeah. is. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy for him to stop doing what right. what he he wants to do, which is he wants to know because this is and it really came down to also this idea of like the whole quest for him is that he wants to know because he wants his life to be relevant. Yeah. You know, um, this is his purpose, which is to find out knowledge that will hopefully benefit others, you know, and and when you're driven by that type of purpose, you know, um, again, you definitely need some guidelines to make sure that, um, you know, you're around right. to continue that purpose, you know? so <laughs> It does you no good if you don't survive the experience. So That's at true. some point that That's has true. to be, you know, part of the equation. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so uh, one of the things as we kind of come to the end um, is uh, the whole DTI situation. Yeah. 
And I have a sneaking suspicion <laughs> that this may have uh, uh, implication in a in maybe the next couple books that we see where we can possibly line up the novel verse with the Picard universe. You think? Does that sound like something I would have any interest at all in doing? I mean, do you know me at all about you? <laughs> it just seemed like, you know, I get it, Kirsten. I see what you're doing here. I see it. I, I feel see seen. It. I feel um, seen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Kirsten has been seen and heard. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh but um I, I so i one of the things that i thought was really smart is is you know um you talked about how some of the things that you know at the very beginning that some of the things were done by necessity right. of where we're kind of trying to bring this to but i just wanted to um you know as we talk about the end and and like can we talk about the fact that you know you just made fans days by marrying Chakotay and Janeway finally. <laughs> I mean, we can. Um, I, I because that's a monumental thing to finally make happen after all of these years. I mean, I I think that um, there are many uh, fans out there who squeed with joy when you finally get to the fact that you know, right. JC finally <laughs> got hitched. Right. As if that's the end of the story. <laughs> No, that's just you the beginning. Know. Believe me, he's going to learn that she oh. does super obnoxious things by like just throwing her uniform oh. on the floor, <laughs> and he, you know he's going to learn. She's going to learn that she hates the fact that you know his Akukje Moya T-shirt right. is is you know always you know yeah. so yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess it's funny because once these two got back together. There was never any question in my mind that these two are going to enjoy a very deep, complex relationship as long as they're in each other's lives, no matter what form that takes. Um, and the further we got down the road, it also became clear to me that there was not necessarily any reason for them to get married. You know, as long as they're on this mission, as long as they're together doing their thing, um, it might even just be an unnecessary distraction. But there was something about the monumentalness of the undertaking before them that suddenly emotionally required a level of commitment between the two of them that had not existed there before. It's not that I thought they were interested in other people or like anything like that, but this moment felt appropriate for that. You know, if the next mission was, well, now we're going to backtrack into, you know, Krenum space, or we're going to do, you know, any of the other 95 things that are on our to-do list for out here exploring the Delta Quadrant, it wouldn't have happened. But, but this, taking this incredibly bold new step into a very unknown future, I don't know, just emotionally, I was like, I think he would have said yes at any point in the journey. Absolutely, I will marry. I think I had, I think he said that a number of times, even to Bolana in the past. I think she was the one who needed to reach a point where she was going to choose that quite purposefully. And this moment felt like that for me. And so it happened. But as with everything, you know, without those set of circumstances, I don't necessarily think that that would have happened now. Do I think it would have happened eventually? Probably. But, you know, it's... Um, 
for me, it felt like, it just felt like the next logical step, given what they were about to undertake. And I, I think you're absolutely right, because when you think about what they're about to do, which is t- to traverse universes, yeah. um, something that, you know, and go beyond the Great Barrier, uh, and, you know, thankfully they're not going to shock our e, um, <laughs> is... Um, a really beautiful thing and and I think it it creates this it creates this beautiful thing where it's like you know Voyager starts with them being 70,000 light years from home but now they're going to be like what billions of miles from home no um, I think I think or millions no I think it's another I feel like Sadie is another 50 50 something thousand light years okay. from home so okay it's not a okay you know but then once they're inside not, of it yeah, yeah. right Right. It's, it's, it's so, you know, but, we're now we're now going without infrastructure. So mm-hmm, it really yeah. is the Wild West. Anything can happen. Yeah. Well, and it and it creates a nice sense of like a, a, a poetry, yeah. you know, where, um, you know, Lucas always talked about things rhyming. And, and in many ways, the end here is the beginning. Yeah. And, and I think there's a real beauty in that, that now that, yeah, they're going to be, you know, so far away from earth um and and yet they're going on purpose this yeah. time yeah. you know and, and to and what other crew a, would that make sense you know exactly like, like yeah. i i could exactly. imagine a lot of starfleet crews encountering something like that and going well sounds good on paper let's check back with command and spend a few years in r&d and then make sure we're all ready to go but but these guys already know this about themselves you know they know how to take an opportunity like this and turn it into real growth and advancement. And they have that absolute security in both themselves and one another that this is something they can accomplish and are absolutely willing to risk. So, yeah, I mean, you know, at one point in time, I had to seriously ask myself the question, how does this end, right? Because the ending that I had had in mind from, you know, the earliest days was not it. And... What I knew would satisfy me was to know that Voyager was out there exploring something nobody else had ever seen before, um, you know, in a way that continued to give them a unique purpose within this incredibly vast universe of Star Trek. Um, So, I mean, I was really happy when I sort of hit upon the notion that... uh, Mm. They're not just still out there fulfilling their three-year mission. You know, they're out there taking us, dragging us forward into the future. You know, um, it felt worthy of them to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought the most poignant part of that was allowing the crew to make the decision on whether that's best for right. them. You know, like Tom and Bellana. you know, um, and I, I thought... There is a real beauty in that, 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 you know, um, as Tom's like, maybe we can, maybe we can find a, you know, galaxy class ship or, you know, and, and then they hit about this idea of like, what if we just went back to earth Mm -hmm. and had a more normal existence and that that's going to work best for them right Mm -hmm. now. And there was just a, like for them to let go, but again, it's, what is it? We talked about it earlier. It's sacrificial love, but for their children and that. They're willing to do that for them. 
and try and give them something that they never had, which is, you know, when you hear parents talk, almost always what they want is to give their kids the things they never had. Um, And there was just such a beauty in that because there's, um, it's just another form of love. and, And you really kind of hit all of the major points of what it means to to love somebody and all the major relationships that we have in life. And again, for that to be the end for this crew felt right. Yeah. Um, be- because like you said, more than just about any other crew, um, maybe other than Deep Space Nine, you know, where they're, they're all in a stationary place and they really grow together. You know, Voyager is the other crew where it's like, We've been through thick and thin. We've been through things nobody else has been through. We are not just community. We are family. And so uh, I don't know. I just, it was great, Kirsten. It was great. Thank you. I mean, I will say, I do think you can make the case with the original series, with the next generation, certainly with Deep Space Nine. These were all families with very different dynamics. But there is something, but there is something that is unique in Voyager's dynamic that, um, that, uh, you know, isn't really shared with the other groups just by the circumstances that they survived. Um, so, so yeah, I, uh, family has always been at the heart of all of these stories, lots of different kinds of families. Um, and this was just Voyager's, this is Voyager's version of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I love these people. I love these characters. I love, the places that we have been able to go and explore. And um, yeah, I, the, 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 this whole thing has brought such joy to me to, to sort of think about these things and to have these people be the ones on this journey with me as we sort of address these challenges and figure out what is the, what is the best of ourselves that we can possibly bring to them, you know? Well, in my life... To quote the Beatles, I never thought that I would love the Voyager crew uh, as much as you made me love the Voyager crew. And so that is, Kirsten, that is an amazing thing because I've been podcasting with Matthew for, I don't know, nine years now, something like that. And he's not a huge Voyager fan, but he's always been in love with your books. So you have a magic touch when it comes to Voyager. Kirsten, I have one last question. I didn't want to interject earlier because I didn't want to disrupt the flow of the story, but I really enjoyed the audiobook version of this book. I love audiobooks and I'm so happy that we're getting them again now. Of course, as podcasters, we love audio. Most of the Star Trek novels that we're getting these days, though, they're being read by professional voice people who do audiobooks. But this one, it was such a delight that it was read by you as the author. And I know that recording an audiobook takes a significant amount of time. You're an extraordinarily busy woman with everything going on in the Star Trek universe and other things you're doing. So is how did that come about? Is it something that you really wanted to do for your story or did they ask you? No, it was was something that I really wanted to do. I reached out to them. I was like, Mm -hmm. "Um, guys, I thought so. And, and, and here's the reason why Um, often overlooked in my resume is the fact that I started out this work as a actor and a performer. And um, that included voice work back in the day. A hundred million years ago, not that many, I actually recorded an audio book for a gentleman who had written a sort of historical fiction novel about 
uh, a certain period of time, about Civil War era. And um, so, so having done it once, I had the confidence that it was something that I could do again. Um, but there's also the reality that, you know, different artists approach this particular form uh, with very different ideas. Uh, in lo- I don't listen to a ton of audiobooks, but before I went, went in to do this, I did a little bit of research and I sort of came down on, there's, there's, there seem to be two sides to this, right? There are the folks who really do voices, you know, the, the same voice actors who would do really well in animation and, you know, mm-hmm. I, one of my best friends in the world, my daughter's godfather is one such actor. Um, and, uh, and so when they read these things, they are able to sort of clarify who's speaking and whatever by just simply really modulating their voice in very specific ways. That is not a skill that I particularly have. Um, but the thing that I do have is an absolute understanding of what every single character in this story is going through as they are going through it. And so I really just raised the question with the producers, you know, um, is that going to be okay? Are you more interested in, you know, specifically delineated characters and qualities for the voices so that there's never any question in people's minds about who's speaking or are you interested in, you know, the sort of deepest understanding I can bring of what's really happening in these moments between these characters? And they overwhelmingly were like, oh, number two, please. And so I felt confident then going forward and, and doing it the way that I did. Uh, and yeah, it was, you know, I gave up a lot of weekends to make that happen. Um, but, you know, it had, had audiobooks been a possibility before, now, I would have made the request sooner. I didn't know they were doing an audiobook of Architects. You know, and January mm-hmm. Lavoie obviously did a lovely job with that. Um, but I would have asked then to do it had I known that, that it could be done. And so, yeah, it was, um, it, was so, it was a great deal of fun. It was very hard work. But it was, it was a great deal of fun. And I, and I guess I also felt like, you know, giving people the opportunity to not just read what was in my mind, but to actually hear what was in my mind, yeah. my interpretation of these moments that they might enjoy that. And it sounds like they have. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's what I love. I mean, my favorite audiobooks are the ones that are read by the authors, because as you say, you know better than anyone, what your intention was, what's going through the minds and the characters mm-hmm. and it comes through. So uh, I just wanted to say, thank you. I'm glad you did that. I was so happy when I saw that you were actually reading it yourself. Yeah. And I want to encourage everyone to, even if you've read the book in print ebook, go get this audiobook as well, because it's definitely a wonderful listen. Oh, thank you. Yay. Well, and it, it's something where I'm like, you know, I I don't normally do audiobooks because I'm just somebody who does better when I'm reading the the book itself. Um, but I I love your dulcet tones, so I just kind of <laughs> want to listen to you read the book now. Um, and um, I think it would be really fun. And and it's one of those things where, in in many ways, I don't know if this is weird, but because we've talked to you for so long. When I'm reading the book, I can kind of hear you narrating uh-huh. the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but not everybody's had that, yeah. you know, like that we have. So yeah. I'm really thankful that they let you do the audiobook because I was listening to an excerpt of it and 
I was like, oh, I do kind of want to get this and now <laughs> listen to it again because this would be so cool. So, yeah. Um, and I know that we've had fans for years, Chris and I, when we first started Literary Trek, so many people that are Star Trek fans that have visual impairment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for them, it was very difficult to read Star Trek books. And this has made it so much easier for them. Yeah. So, yeah. There's also a, a thing that I considered, and this is just purely personal, which is, you know, I have a daughter who I love deeply and who is not yet really old enough to dive too deeply into the work that I have done or these stories, but someday she will, I'm guessing. And, um, you know, my father passed when I was 22, just shy of my 23rd birthday. And I would give anything in the world to have 12 hours of his voice telling me a story, you know? And, um, and I think the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge here was the idea of this just existing for her someday. So everybody has to suffer now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that I can give a gift to my child. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's great, though. And I think, honestly, it, it's it's more beautiful that there was a really personal reason, um, because honestly, that means for you um, that the I think the presentation is is going to just benefit from that, you know. Uh, so anything we do uh, when we have really personal reasons, I think, ends up better in our lives. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really cool. Well, um you know, this this may be it for we're we're not sure. It it could be the last Voyager book. Maybe you'll come back and do another one. Um, but uh, obviously, I know you can't tell us anything about what's going to happen in Discovery or Picard. Um, but um, what is keeping you busy these days? Holy cow! Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah. So I am. Uh. Oh Lord, guys! Um, yeah, I, I my um, my work with the uh, televised shows is ever expanding, and I continue to work on multiple shows simultaneously while also um, crafting the tie-in stories that have come along for all of the new shows on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and co-writing, in some cases, those endeavors. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's no end in sight. There is always more to be done. There's always more out there than I have time to work on. Um, but I guess suffice it to say, they are keeping me plenty busy um, these days and for the foreseeable future, which is why it's impossible for me to commit to anything else that would be, you know, my own book. I, you know, of course, uh, Simon and Schuster has very graciously opened the door to, you know, whenever, whatever. And I would never just close it and say, well, no, that's never going to happen. Um, but like I said, for the foreseeable future, my time is beyond, um, filled. So, um, I, I, I have been enjoying being able to devote myself a hundred percent to all of those things without, having this other thing that is so important to me sort of tugging me away from it and, and demanding my attention. Cause it's just, it's a very hard way to live being that fractured. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I speak for every fan um, when I say thank you for, 
making that time uh, to give us this end. I know it meant the world to me mm-hmm. um, because these books have uh, meant so much to me and, and uh, you know, um, just the the ability to um, to to be satisfied was was such a thing that you know doesn't happen very often when you you know how many people complain about the end of a show yeah, and their endings pissed or are whatever, hard you know? fellas like, yeah. they really are yeah um but it was beautiful it was poignant it was wonderful and I I'm just I again I I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for for making the time for us um I I know. Um, that it means so much to not only myself, but every fan of Star Trek books that's been reading your work for so long. And, um, and uh, you know, we're excited to see whatever, you know, you have coming in the future. And, and so um, regardless of if that's a Star Trek book or what's coming on screen. So, um, but yeah, thank well, you. And in addition to that, Kirsten, in addition to a thank you for all your work on the novels, I want to say thank you to all your contributions for all your contributions that you're making to the television series right now, because I can often see your hand at play in there. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate that we have someone with such a vast knowledge of the Star Trek universe and the lit verse who is willing to kind of pull those pieces together and help guide things. And yeah. I think it's a really enhanced what we're seeing on the screen. So oh, thank you for that. That as is well. extremely kind of you to say. And um, I appreciate I, I appreciate that all very, very much. I, you know, the, the difference here is that the work that I do now is intensely collaborative. There is no, there is no way for one person to take on these tasks. And, you know, there's just, there's too many art forms involved in the creation of something like this. And so uh, there are always people with vision, but it's, it, it really just of it by nature is um, is always going to be a community process and a collaborative process. And um, it's why I will miss the books, you know, right? This, that, that's an area where I am free on my own without anybody's voice to just define a story and craft characters in a way that feels right to me. And that's sort of the end of the story. Um, and I think the reason I was able to hold on to that as long as I'd have is because that is such a satisfying experience as an artist. Um, so I sacrificed that at this point in time for the ability to work on things that, you know, for better and worse, have a wider reach and in some cases a wider impact. So it's, um, it's actually a tough bargain to make, but it's one that I am quite happy to at this point in time, you know, um, the books aren't going anywhere. If I ever want to sit down and write another book, I certainly can, whether it's a Star Trek book or any other kind of novel. Um, uh, it's just a matter of right now, how do I survive with as much, you know, kind of on my plate as there is. Uh, you know. And I'm, I am ridiculously blessed to get to do this work at all. So, and I'm very, always very conscious of that as well. I'm a lucky girl. Well, we're lucky you're involved, so thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Is there um, anywhere that uh, fans, I, I think I know the answer, but is there anywhere fans can uh, catch up with you then online um, to maybe, you know, discuss with you uh, this last book? Uh, it's difficult just, just because of time. Um, in, in the past, I would uh, frequent the 
Trek BBS board and interact with folks there. And from time to time, I'm still able to go back and at least see what people are saying. Um, I, I, I tend to be reluctant to begin conversations anymore, though, kind of in the online space, because they can wind up taking up a lot of time that I don't have. <laughs> and, and also can, yeah. you know, I mean, people are naturally curious about everything that I am working on, but there are only certain things that I'm working on that I'm actually able to speak about publicly. So it, it, it you know, I, it becomes very frustrating to be like, yeah, I can't talk about that. Oh, I can't talk about that either. No, I can't talk about that. Um, and so I, I have just sort of for my own sanity kind of um, taken what was already a very small footprint online and made it even smaller. Um, so, mm. so, so, but, but I guess do know that if you are out there um, commenting on what I'm doing, if you're tweeting about it, if you're writing about it on the Trek BBS, um, you know, if you're posting reviews on Amazon or on Goodreads or whatever, I'm likely to see them at some point in time. And, and I always appreciate uh, hearing people's thoughts about what I have done. Like it's, it's the creation of a thing is a joy in itself, but then also understanding how that creation has actually touched people's lives is incredibly fulfilling. So, um, so yeah, I wish the conversations didn't have to be quite so one-sided right now, but they just kind of do. So, yeah, well, we understand. And so, you know, I was thinking back, I think the first episode that we talked to you, we were talking about protectors. Really? We didn't, uh, did we go back and do Eternal Tide or did we never do Eternal Tide? Um, wait, no, Eternal Tide, you're right. Oh my gosh. I thought we um, maybe started Eternal with that Tide one. was the first one. Yes. Um, so, uh, it's been, it's been that long ago. I can't believe I know, that's right? why. We don't even remember. Um, Again, thank you so much for always being so generous to Literary Tracks with your time. Um, thank you for your friendship. You know, uh, we love you here. And um, regardless of whether you ever get to return to the books or not, um, we know that you're in good hands with helping craft Star Trek for the next generation. And so um, from the bottom of our hearts here, we just want to say thank you so much. You just couldn't possibly be more welcome. Um, and thank you to you guys for, you know, reaching out to begin with and uh, starting these conversations. Um, it, they have always been so fun for me. Um, talking with smart people about uh, things that we all love uh, is the highlight of any given day. So I really appreciate you guys as well. Well, Matthew, that was wonderful. It's always so great to have Kirsten on. And you guys have built such a rapport over the years through the show discussing her books. And I was fairly quiet. I was just enjoying sitting back and listening to the two of you have one of your classic in-depth discussions about Voyager and characters and how Kirsten puts all that together. And I really enjoyed it. Well, and I, I did too. Um, you know, I, I think everybody knows uh, how much I just love having Kirsten on. I, you know, I love Kirsten as a person. Um, and, you know, I it's it's just been such a joy. Um, you know, the, the authors are, are and just have been so wonderful to us here. And, um, you know, that's truly, you know, we can talk about the books that were blue in the face, but to actually get behind the scenes with them. And, you know, Kirsten was always willing to dive as deep as we wanted to go with her books. And um, 
the joy of her books is the fact that we could go so deep uh, with what she would talk about thematically and what she was doing with these characters. And like we mentioned at the very end, Chris, like we both appreciate Voyager in light of her books in a way that we never would have before. And so to me, that's the ultimate gift is she took something that was just something it was okay, but that now I have a love for that I never would have thought possible. So, you know, what a fantastic run she's had. And um, yeah, if this is her last Voyager book, I definitely feel satisfied. I kind of have a feeling it won't be, but it may be a long time before she comes back around to it uh, after all the TV projects and all have played out. But we'll see. Very well, it may be. Well, Matthew, when you're not exploring the emotional depths of the Voyager universe in the way that only Kirsten can bring to life, where can people find you? What do you have going on? Yeah, uh, gosh, you could find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name MattRushing02. Also, of course, running at the 602 Club, which is our whole other side of the network, Chris, that um, we've got some projects in the works for. So uh, make sure you're following us in all of those places. Uh, and of course, I do uh, not only this show, but the 602 Club, which is our, our general geek show, uh, really our place to talk about all of the other fandoms we love and uh, also the home for everything that we're going to want to talk about in the network that doesn't have to do with Star Trek. Uh, you can also uh, find me here doing the orb with you. When we get a chance, we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We promise, guys, we do want to get back with that. We're working on it. Um, you know Chris and I. We love Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, we care about you as the listeners. It's it's definitely a difficulty um, with both of our lives. We're planning on it. We'll be back soon. Uh, and then I'm over on the Nerd Party Network. I do a couple of shows there. One is called Aggressive Negotiations. John Mills and I talk about Star Wars every week on that show, which is a great fun. Uh, and then doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time each and every week. Uh, Chris, you have had some things going on these days, so where can people find you? Yeah, I have pulled the mic out a little bit more often recently. You can find me on my main show, The Ready Room, which I do with Larry Nemechik. We've managed to get at least one episode a month out here for uh, much of this year, which is a change over the past couple of years. And I also have a new Star Trek Universe podcast called Interphase, which I'm doing uh, also is about once a month right now. There are a few episodes out and I'm just exploring all corners of the Star Trek Universe in that podcast and trying to do some topics that are a little bit different than what we've done on other shows. And then I'm hosting The Edge this season for season three of Discovery, largely following my notes from The Edge format from season one, although I might do a few other little things with the show as we go along. And the first episode of that, where I break down That Hope Is You part one, is out now. That's The Edge 97. So you'll find that in your apps. And what else do I have going on? Uh, Matthew, you mentioned The Orb. We're going to try to get some of those out. And then I've got a few other projects that I'm working on. And as usual, the majority of my time is still taken up with my real world job as the editor in chief of a couple of business magazines here in Japan. So that's uh, where I'm, that's what I'm doing these days. But if you'd like to talk to me, the best place to find me is on Twitter at C Brian Jones is the username. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my name pretty much everywhere. But again, Twitter is where I am most active. 
And then you'll find me in the Babel Conference as well, our listeners group on Facebook. Well, of course, we want to say uh, thank you to the associate producers here, Greg Rosier and uh, Casey Petit, for their support of Trek FM's network. Um, and you could be associate producer of Literary Treks or of any of the shows that we have. If you would like, uh, go over to patreon.com slash FM and you can see how you can be part of our team. The network that we have here is vast, and there is no way... Uh, that we can do this on our own. So you can support us through Patreon. There are different contribution levels that you can give at, but in the end, honestly, every little bit helps us. And so go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. Well, Matthew, this interview with Kirsten combined with our breakdown of the comics made for a pretty mammoth episode of Literary Treks here. It's time for us to go ahead and turn our attention to the thing that we'll cover next. So we'll get uh, started on that soon. And I'm looking forward to talking more books and comics with you. Well, Chris, we want to say thank you to everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.